Shoot. Mute. That is why it's not working. Okay, that, that makes that makes sense. Um <clears throat> I love I love uh Give Me Jesus. It's one of my all time favorites. I think it's sometimes Oh, it's so easy to make it complicated, isn't it? I mean I, I love I love diving into the depths of you know, arguing about theology and stuff. I think it's fun. But boy, there's nothing like just pure desire, right? Give me Jesus. Um, and then they're, they're singing the help comes from, and I, I love the line, where, where are you guys? You're over there talking about the hand reaching out for us. Oh, man, so good. Um, I can't get all emotional before I preach. Um, that's not a good, not a good thing. Here, let's pray first. Um, Lord, we stand before you now, and we we ask for your voice, we ask for your presence in our lives in a way that's tangible, in a way that we can feel you, that we can see you. God, we ask that you give us what we have come here this morning for, whether it be rest or motivation or um, just some peace, God, in this, in this world. And this morning, as, as I speak, I ask that my words not be my own, but be yours, and that you speak directly to those who are listening, both here and online, um, what they need to hear. We love you. Amen. I want to introduce you to a gentleman named Doug Hegdahl. Now, Doug Hegdahl is from South Dakota, and straight out of high school, this is during Vietnam, straight out of high school, he goes to the Navy recruiting office and says, I want to go to Australia. Can you make that happen? And they said, yeah, we can make that happen. Here's the dotted line. And, uh, and so they slide a piece of paper across to him, and they... Um, they assign him, he says, well, you know, there's a ship um, that's named after a small city uh, in Australia. I'm sure because it's named after Australia, you're going to be going to Australia. And he goes, oh, that's good enough for me. And off he goes. That's how his career in the Navy began. I want to make it very, very clear. Doug Hegdahl was looking from South Dakota. I can imagine that it was winter doesn't ever say. I've never found any evidence that it was. But I can imagine him sitting in South Dakota thinking about the warm sandy beaches of Australia, wanting to get his feet in the sand and kick back a little bit. I want to make it very clear. Doug was not looking to be a hero. He was not looking to be a hero. So anyways, USS Canberra, this is the ship that he was assigned to. Um, And I want you to notice specifically those massive guns on the front. You see those things? Those are huge. And I don't know if you've ever seen videos of them shooting off guns like this, but when they turn it and they'll shoot, it makes like a giant cavity in the water. Like there's a huge concussion, just like the whole thing shakes. It's crazy. So anyways, they're out in the ocean heading out to Vietnam, and um, he was up early on his watch, And so he heads up to the deck to get 
some fresh air. Little did he know they were about to shoot the guns. And so he's up there getting some fresh air. It's the middle of the night, taking some deep breath, and bam, gun shoots. And he launches over the edge into the ocean. Uh Uh-oh. And so he's sitting there screaming, hey, 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 get me back. Hey, hey, I'm out here. Those guns are loud. After they shoot, nobody can hear a thing, including poor Doug in the water, screaming for help. Hey, help, help, help. Well, he's clearly out there, and he doesn't, I mean, he wasn't wearing a life jacket at the time. He wasn't ready to go swimming. There was no reason he thought he should go swimming. And so he's going, okay, well, what do I do? And he thinks back to his survival training. And in survival training, they say, okay, First thing you do, take off your shoes. If you ever went swimming with with big boots on, not fun. So he takes off his shoes, tosses them. Um, And then you take off your pants, and you tie the legs, and you blow them up, and you hold on to them, and you float. And so that's precisely what he's doing. And so he's out there in the sea, floating along, desperately grasping onto his blown-up pants. Um, when, When he finally is picked up, by some Vietnamese fishermen. Well, (laughs) one funny piece of this is like, so get this, it takes them two full days to realize he's gone. On a ship. The story that I read was that his shipmates thought that he (laughs) just needed a break, and so he went and hid in a corner somewhere, and they're like, we'll just give it to him. It's all good. We'll cover for him. Until two days later, they got sick of covering for him. They went searching for him and couldn't find him. And, well, what do you do? So they had a memorial service for him right there. Nobody knew what happened to him. Nobody knew he went over the side. He was just gone. And so anyways, he's out there. By the time they realized he was gone, he had already been picked up by uh, fishermen and brought back. And so um, he, he's picked up by fishermen, brought back, and he, he is, of course, given over to the North Vietnamese, who were our enemies at the time. And, uh, and they, they find this guy. He's not in uniform, and he has no pants. And they didn't know what to do with this guy. He's clearly not a shot-down pilot, and that's what they're kind of used to, to, to getting here. And, um, and so they're going, well, what do we do with him? And so they, well, um, he must be CIA. They just, apparently, we just drop people off in the ocean, CIA guys, uh, to float. Uh, that's, that's what they thought, at least. And so, so they sat him down. Um, did I go ahead? Yeah, I did. Um, so they sit him down and start interrogating him. And they're not getting anything, and they don't know what to do. And they say, well, well what do you do back home? And he thinks back to it, given this guy is like barely 18. Um, and he's like, well, I'm a farmer, because that's what his dad did in South Dakota. I'm a farmer. And in the, the, the Vietnamese mind, if you're a farmer, well, you use, you use um, ox, right, to, to plow and stuff. And so they said, well, how many ox do your, uh, where's a bottle buffalo? I think my water bottle. Anyways, um, how many of these do you have? Because they're trying to figure out, okay, like, is this guy worth anything? And he, he's like, water buffalo? I don't, we don't have any of those. And he goes, none? And they immediately think, peasant. Very poor peasant. Because the farmers are the, the 
Farmers are the peasants, and your, your wealth is depending on how many of these animals you have. So peasant. And they start going along, and he's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. He keeps on kind of answering with, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. And they finally realize, this guy is, they, 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 they pin him. They decide he is an uneducated guy. He knows nothing. And he realizes pretty quickly, he starts picking up on this. And he goes, they think that I'm incredibly dumb. And so, and so they, they go and they say, we demand a confession. And he plays long. He's like, sure, okay. And the, Wait, what? We don't have to torture you first? Oh, sure, I'll do whatever you want to do. And uh, they, bring, they bring him a paper and slide it across, and they say, okay, sign your confession. And he picks up the pen and kind of looks at it and acts like he's never really seen one before and just starts kind of doing this thing. And they, what are you doing? And he says, well, I, I, I don't know how to write. I'm just a poor peasant. And they go, oh, um, yeah, that kind of makes sense. You're just a poor peasant. Well let's, well, let's give you a tutor so that you can write a confession. And so he goes and successfully convinces them for two full days, sitting with this tutor, that he is completely incapable of learning a thing. <laughs> and so they get so frustrated with him that they're like, just scribble something. And he's like, mm. they're like, done, confession. Um, meanwhile, he didn't do a thing. And they send him off to what they call the Hanoi Hilton, which, as many of you know, is the worst of the prison camps. There was tons of torture, tons of horrible things. It's not a place that you want to be. But Doug had a secret weapon. He was considered completely harmless. <laughs> and so they labeled, they gave him a name, and, and I can't pronounce it in North Vietnamese, but they called him the incredibly stupid one. That was his new name, is the incredibly stupid one. And so they go, and they tell Doug, all right, you can do whatever we want. You don't care. You're completely useless. And so while all the other prisoners were locked up, they said, yeah, uh, sure, go ahead and sweep the, uh, sweep the uh, courtyard or whatever. I am told that this is an actual picture of him in the Hanoi Hilton sweeping the courtyard. And so he's completely playing up this incredibly stupid one mentality and just kind of, I don't know what's going on, sweeping, sweeping, sweeping. And as he's sweeping along, he'll go around. He was basically completely unsupervised. When all the other prisoners were highly guarded, he was completely unsupervised. And he'd go along, sweep, 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 bend down, pick up a handful of dirt. They thought that he was ridiculous. Look, he's playing with dirt. Sweep, sweep, sweep. Nobody's watching. Unscrew a gas cam, dump the dirt in, screw it back in, sweep, 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 sweep. Um... The Hanoi Hilton, when he got there, had five working trucks. Not long after, they had no working trucks. <laughs> and so one by one, he went and took these things out. <clears throat> and so he pulled these little stunts, little by little, as he was going along, um, uh, to, to try to gather intel. And so one day, he decides, you know what? I, I, I'm trying to gather intel here, but it's hard to do with my poor eyesight. He, he, he wore glasses typically, and he didn't have his glasses anymore. And he couldn't see very far off into the distance. And so he, he, he hatched up a plan. He says, he goes to the um, prison guards, and he says, Hey, I would love to read some of your propaganda. Can we do that? 
And of course, they're ecstatic. Like, yes, yes, we would love that. So they put it in front of them. Apparently, they had forgotten that he had claimed that he couldn't read or write. Completely irrelevant. So they put it in front of him, and he looks at it, and he squints, and he goes, I can't read this. Why? I don't have my glasses. Oh, we need to get you glasses. And so they throw him in the truck and take him on into town. And the whole time, he's looking around, making sure he can gather as much intel as he's got. They take him into town, take him to a shop where they have glasses, and say, get any glasses you want. And so little did they know they got him glasses for farsight reading, or for, for being able to see things way off, not for things right here. But completely irrelevant, they brought him off, and this is a picture of him with his new beautiful set of glasses that he got. Um, <laughs> and so one day they went and made a big show, they wanted to make a big show of releasing prisoners, and they intentionally went out to find prisoners that didn't have any or many scars or anything because they wanted to make sure that um, it looked like there was fair treatment all these things, and so they picked him out. Well, this is incredible to me because everybody there had a good share of, of torture, and it was, it, was a, it was a horrible, horrible place to be. But Doug says, no, 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 I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And his commander that was there, so they still do rank while they're there, his commander says, no, no, you're going to go, and you're going to go. The reason that you're going to go is because you're going to report back everything that you found. Not only that is you're going to report back all 200 and 50 names of the prisoners here so that their families can know that you are still alive. 250 names. Furthermore, hey bud, um, furthermore, um, he, he was able to memorize all 250 names and a personal detail, whether it be social security na- uh, number, a dog's name, spouse's name, a favorite memory. We're good. It's all good. Yeah. Um, thank you, though. A spouse's name, whatever it may be. And so they release him back with this wealth of knowledge. And they brought him back, and much of the information that he brought back, they heard the, the U.S. Um, government heard for the very first time. Many of the names they had already assumed were soldiers that were dead, that were alive now. And he brought back valuable information about what was happening. There was virtually nothing known about what was going on at the time in this prison. And so he actually went on, and they they had some peace talks in Paris, and he went on, and he publicly confronted his captors on a world stage in Paris, and he created a PR nightmare for the North Vietnamese. And this, what, what he specifically did was he was able to um, create better conditions for those in the prison camps because of the information he was able to bring back. One of the amazing things, um, his bunkmate at the time named Dick Stratton, um, became very good friends. And one of the plots they came up with, he publicly accused the captors of murdering in cold blood Dick Stratton, which was not true at all. But what it did is it ensured his life because they stood up and said, that's not true. That part's not true at all. Look! And they delivered him alive and unharmed. <laughs> smart, smart guy. He was it, was, it was said with no uncertain terms by those who were there, he was the smartest person in the camp. Yet, 
he was labeled the stupid one. This is Dick Stratton, the gentleman that he went uh, and he saved. Dick Stratton turned out to be um, a very powerful and prominent leader in the Navy, um, wrote books, taught, I mean, very, very uh, famous, um, very high-ranking. He says this in, in a book, Doug Hagdahl, a high school graduate who worked in the kitchen on a ship. The man literally fell off the boat, and he has five vehicle kills to his name. Yet I am, world famo- I am a world-famous fighter pilot. I have two college degrees. I have 2,000 jet hours, 300 carrier landings, 22 combat missions. How many enemy trucks do I have? None. It's clear that Doug is a better man than I. This is a man that was able to take a situation with virtually no, with no training, with no nothing, and turn it into something incredible for those around him. Hagdahl's ability to recite the names of other POWs proved invaluable, proving the information that um, he provided information that until then was largely an unknown. His revelations about the terrible conditions and tortures being inflicted on the POWs had also previously been a well-kept secret. And in the end, the most junior POW in all of Hanoi had been able to strike a significant blow against his enemy without firing a single shot. And I think that this story is an apt analogy for the things that we sometimes do, isn't it? We create these, these personas. Doug obviously did this for self-preservation and also to help his comrades and his, uh, his friends there. But we create these personas. We act a certain way. We do these things to protect ourselves, to protect ourselves emotionally, right? We come, we have traumas in the past, and, and we go and we pretend like we're angry or mean. We pretend. And what we do is we, we, try, we end up doing the exact opposite often of what actually we really need, what we actually want, because we are trying to protect ourselves. And so we do these things and we create these things, and um, oftentimes the smartest person in the room you would never be able to tell because they're hiding behind. Oftentimes the most compassionate person in the room is somebody that you'd never be able to tell. And it's hard to see beyond these things because we're, we're looking for that. And how often are we on the other side? How often do we wholeheartedly believe the lies that somebody else tells us simply because that's what we want to believe? How often do we dig beneath the surface and look at where that person is really at? Why are they acting this way? Why are they so mean? Why are they lashing out? Why are they creating this persona of, of hatred? Or why are they creating this persona of, of loftiness or whatever these things? Why do they do those things? And, and these are all defense mechanisms. Ironically, the walls that we put up and the push towards are the opposite of what we want. There was this kid, I was working at camp one year, and um, it was this like super kind of like, I almost, I, I don't want to say new agey because it creates religious ideas that weren't there, but kind of this very progressive hippie type camp, not Christian. And um, 
And, and so they had some ideas that I thought, I had been working at camp for a little while, and they had some ideas I thought were a little bit nutty. But, you know, I was, I was a worker there, so we'll see. And there was this one kid that was an absolute disaster, right? Like, he was constantly hitting the other kids and anything that you do. It didn't matter what it was. He was there causing chaos, Like right? For those of you who are uh, Thomas the fans, he was causing chaos and delay constantly. Um, so he was constantly there. And, you know, the camp director comes along, and he's like, yeah you know, this kid, like, he just really needs, he needs some attention. He needs some positive affirmation. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's totally what he needs, thinking, no, that's not at all what he needs. He, he, needs, he needs something that we're not able to give him legally. And um, so, but he goes, and he's like, no, 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 watch this, watch this. And so he goes, and he brings them by, and he, this camp director says, um, Gage, you are going to be my buddy for today. Is that cool? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, and he, he goes, and he makes them his, like, little hat made out of a gourd, right? So he, like, slaps this gourd hat on him, and he's like, this is a sign that you are my helper for today. Savvy? And they're like, yeah. And so he goes, and he's like, that kid was the hardest worker at camp that day. Wow, I was shocked. I'm like, how did you get him to do anything other than destroy things? And he's like, Brandon, you got a lot to learn, don't you? This kid was out reacting because he desperately needs attention. He says, I know where this kid came from. He doesn't get any attention at home, and he has learned to do whatever he can to get whatever attention he can because that's the only attention he ever gets. Show him a better way. I showed him a better way of getting attention. I praised him for the good things that he did. He helped me scrub the toilets, and that was the best day ever for him. Why? Because he had somebody telling him that he was doing a great job. The walls that we put up, the things that we do. And the reason I'm thinking about this, honestly, is because of some surveys that I took. Don't worry, I, I warned everybody beforehand. Um... So every year um, where, I, where I was, I would do surveys with the school kids. And uh, this is the first year I'm able to do it with high school, which is pretty sweet. Um, but I have this survey, completely anonymous survey, to get this out there. Because I, what I have discovered is that the things that I think that I know about teens and preteens are usually wrong. <laughs> and I would like to know that. Um, and so I put out this survey, and it's got some general questions on it, like things like, you know, if you were to have a superpower, what would you have? And then it gets a little bit deeper, and I've got these questions on there, and and one of the things that I'm always really interested in is, what are your perceptions of the church, and what would you like me to know about the church? And because this is um, anonymous, then I I usually get a lot more um, honest answers than I typically do would otherwise. Um, And so, you know, because it's completely anonymous, they'll put things on. And I found there were, there were two things that really surprised me this time around. Um, like I said, I've been doing this for a while. I've seen a lot of things. Um, there were two things that really surprised me on this survey. And the first one is I say on a scale of 1 to 10, and this is both Adventist and non-Adventist, all juniors and seniors at our school took it. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you feel like your church cares about you? And I very, 
very rarely get high scores. I maybe have gotten like a nine or a 10. Like I'd be surprised if I get it like once or twice a year. Um, and with just about everyone, with the exception of one or two, and because I, I haven't looked too closely in it to even know if these are kids that go to our church or not, um, they gave incredibly high scores on that. And so I want to give you guys a big, big congratulations on that, because whatever you've been doing to show the uh, teenagers growing up in our church that you care about them is working. Um, they may not agree with everything that we have to say. They may not agree with everything that we have to do, all of our beliefs, whatever it is, but they know that you care about them. And in my mind, that's the single biggest thing that we could give them. Um, the other thing that really surprised me, and, um, and this is what I've, I've been thinking about, and this is what I want to give to you today, is I asked, what would you, what do you want most out of a faith community? So that means us, right? Like, what do you want most out of a faith community? And I usually just get, I usually get answers that are across the board on this. Um, and, you know, it's usually, uh, there's some, some people that think a little bit deeper about it, and there's some people that don't think so deep about it, and like, more cookies. Um, clearly, we're giving them enough cookies. Um, but without fail, again, with the exception of maybe one or two, every single answer, and they didn't, again, this was completely anonymous. They were not working together. Without exception, the answers all came back. We want a place where everybody is accepted unconditionally. That is what we want. And it kind of gives me chills because I feel the same way, right? Like, you probably do too. I want a place where everyone can come and be accepted unconditionally. And I've been around for long enough to know what the next reaction usually is. The next reaction is, oh, so you expect us to believe everything exactly as you believe, isn't it? You expect us to just accept that wholeheartedly, isn't it? And so I, I had a conversation with the juniors and seniors, and I said, is that what you're asking? Do you want everybody to agree with you? And the answer was absolutely not. We don't expect everybody to agree to, uh, with us. Of course we don't expect everybody. We don't agree with each other. <laughs> we don't expect that. They said, what we expect is simply that we're respected and loved. That's it. We're respected and loved. I said, okay, well, what does that mean to you? You know, is that, and so we went over a few things. We talked about, um, oh, I, I want to back up just a little bit um, before I get too deep into this. I asked them, why, how, why do you feel like your church cares about you? And they talked, uh, we had a few comments about, um, you know, they've always supported the things that we do. If we go on trips, Wednesday nights, whatever, like they've always supported in a big way. Um, the things that matter to us, they say from they, meaning we, you, us, um, you say it from the pulpit. If there's a game, they show up for us. They cheer us on. If there's anything that we do, they show up. Um, the really fancy word for that is incarnational, by the way. And it's basically just meaning, like, we show up in people's lives, and we, 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 we show interest in what they do. And they said, you guys are doing a great job at that, so good job. 
Um, and, and it makes me super, like, honestly, it just, like, it makes, it makes me so excited to be in a community that's, that's that way. So anyways, we were talking about um, acceptance, and I said, okay, well, like, what does that mean? What does it mean when you're loved and respected? And, and they were talking a little bit about, like, hey, just showing interest in what we are and who we do and not judging us for the way that we believe, respecting, respecting our current journey and the way that we are. Um, Something else that I thought was really interesting on, uh, that we talked about was somebody brought up the fact that um, simply being nice to us, being speaking in, from them, be, simply being nice to us isn't, isn't good enough. <laughs> simply being nice to us isn't good enough. If, and somebody said, if I bring a friend that doesn't look like anybody else in the congregation— Somebody that people there would probably think, like, oh, they're probably doing drugs or they're on the wrong path or whatever. If I bring somebody like that to church, I want to know that they're going to be invited to lunch. That's legit, I would say, right? It's not that I just want somebody to, like, smile at me or maybe not give dirty looks. Like, we want to know that somebody is going to approach that person and let them know, we're glad that you're here. Let me invest in you. Wow. Good insights. Thank you. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about assumptions, because in thinking about this topic and thinking about what that means and acceptance, I mean, I think I could probably just close the sermon right there on what it is, but I was thinking a little bit about what that means from a biblical perspective. And what I eventually came to see in this is that the real problem that we have and the reason that we may struggle sometimes with the idea of acceptance is the, is the assumptions that we have about other people. Um, it's natural. We get that. I, I get that. Like, I've raised three kids. I'm in the process of raising three kids. Um, I, I've taught them about Sabbath, as you've seen, and math. Um, The first thing that children do, for those of you who are parents, is they start categorizing the world around them. They look for patterns in their world. They look for patterns in thought. What does this weird sound mean? What does this person mean? And any little input will be judged. A kid that grows up with having a father that's not so nice to them will not like men because they, their mind immediately switches over to this idea that men are bad, right? Because they categorize, they categorize, they categorize. And so what we immediately do is that we look at people, and our mind, without us thinking, immediately turns to, what can I determine about this person by the way they dress, by the way they act, by the words that they say? And that's judgment, right? And so we can immediately come in just like the guards, and say, oh, that guy's stupid, that guy's on drugs, that person doesn't belong with us. I had a really brief conversation with some of the high school students this week that got me thinking, and they were asking a little bit about culture, Adventist culture, and the way that we work, and why we do things. And I was talking a little bit about, about tribalism, right? And, and, and we have this idea, like, it, it doesn't matter where you are, we all want to belong to a group. And the first piece of belonging to a group is defining your boundaries. Who are we? What do we do, right? Like, you go and you join a surfing club. What do we do? We like surfing. Guess what? If you don't like surfing, you're not a part of that club. Makes sense, right? Um, When I was in college, I joined the math club. Why? Because I hate math. I figured there are good free tutors there. 
That's true, completely true. Some of those people are my best friends now. Um, math nerds are awesome. Um, I had more fun with them. It was, it was awesome. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm getting sidetracked. Um, but we, we, we have to define ourselves, right? And so we start subconsciously defining ourselves by looking around and say, what are the commonalities? Well, we all look this way. We all act this way. We all act this way. These are the words we don't say. Here are the words we do say. And so we immediately start doing that. And then when, when, when somebody in our group doesn't act like that way, it makes us really uncomfortable because all of the sudden it's like, oh, they must not be part of us. I thought they were a part of us. And we feel like a little bit betrayed, right? Or if somebody walks in the door that's not doing this, we immediately ask ourselves, is this a person a part of our group or not? And so what we end up doing is that we start talking about, mm, oh, good, it is there. Okay. Um, so what we start doing is I think that sometimes subconsciously in, in some churches, and I don't think that this is necessarily our church, but I think we need to grapple with this a little bit. Sometimes we welcome people into church like this. Welcome to church. I hope that you change here. And we can, be, can make you more like us, right? And don't get me wrong. I hope that the experience of coming here is a life-changing experience. I hope that you're changed by it, that you, you see the love of God and that your heart is moved by it. But those aren't the things that I'm talking about. I'm talking about those external things, the way we dress, the way we talk, the way we act. Like, I want to make you more refined. And I would much—personally, uh, we mentioned this in the parents' group. Like, I would much rather have a kid that's—kid— uh, I would much rather have a student or a teenager that's struggling, that's not acting the right way, that's not saying the right things, but they're searching for God in their lives, than the kid that—not kid—than the student that—I would much rather have that person than the student that looks the right way, that plays all the right instruments, that says all the right things, they smile at the right time, they raise their hands at the right time, they're up front when we ask them to be, but they are not searching for God. I don't want that. I want, I want the one with problems that's looking for God in their lives. Remember I said earlier, the deepest thing, the best thing that we could possibly want when we come here is a deep desire for God. And so sometimes it's tempting to say, welcome. I'm hope, I hope you're ready to become exactly what we want you to be. <laughs> And I've been thinking a lot about how God must see it. You see, and this is, this is what I came to, right? Like, it's easy to, to, to value somebody for their potential, right? I think that that comes up a lot. And we come, and we bring somebody in, and let's say there's somebody that walks through these doors that is really messed up in all the typical ways, Right? And the way that we pass this off is like, oh, I see potential in that person. And there's nothing wrong with potential per se, but is that what God would say? And I was thinking a little bit about how God sees potential. And you know what I came to the conclusion of? You know what God sees potential in? Dirt. Dirt. That's all he needs is dirt. He got dirt, he made a human, breath, boom, person. There's potential. 
That's all he needs is, is dirt. As far as that is concerned, we can go, go even further back. He doesn't even, even need to do dirt. Ex nihilo. He created everything out of nothing. He, God sees potential out of nothing. Why would he come to save us? It's not because he saw potential. It's because he saw value the way we currently are. He saw value in us the way we currently are. And I think this kind of comes in the nature of sin. Where does that that's put us with this whole sin thing, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? I've heard a lot of sermons that use that text to talk about how bad we are. You're bad. You're bad. You're bad. Good thing for you. God saved you so that you could go and have an eternal reward and live in utopia. Because that's totally why God wanted to save you. That doesn't make sense to me. That does not make sense to me. If God simply wanted somebody to populate heaven, he would have made somebody to populate heaven. He came and died for us because he saw value in us the way that we are, not the way that we can become. He can make a rock the way that we can become. But he wants you the way that you are. I think that most people see sin as just a dirtiness, like a raunchiness, and it's, it's it's this barrier to this ideal of heavenly perfection. Something we only need to if we, if we want to go to heaven, right? And then we have this all have sinned convenient excuse, right? So we like balance back and forth. So if I'm not perfect, well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not perfect. But then again, we look at somebody else and be like, oh, but I'm a little bit more perfect than them, Right? <laughs> Like, I, I, I can do that. And so we bounce back and forth, and we tend to use this verse in, as, as conveniently as possible. And I've been thinking about the, the woman that was brought to Jesus when she was accused a lot recently. I don't know why, but that's been on my mind since I've, since I've lived here in Oregon. And I've just been mulling it over and over and over. And so there's this woman that was caught in adultery, um, and, and, and she was brought in, and she was put there, and, and the Pharisees were wanting Jesus to condemn her, right? Like, the law, Jesus, says that she should be put to death. And so they were looking at her value, right? And the value that were, they were placing on her was her purity, her sexual purity. To them, she was purely an object of sexual desire or sexual disgust. That's all they saw in her. And Jesus bent down and picked her up and said, no. As a matter of fact, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I love this because I, I believe, I have, come, I have come to believe that this text is, is a full analogy of what we just read. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This woman is put down before him, condemned to death. And Jesus bends down. And if you, if you read and believe Ellen, what Ellen White says, she says that, She's writing the sins of everyone around her. All have fallen short. That's what Jesus is saying. All of you have fallen short. All of you sinned. How are you going to condemn this person when you too are wrong? I don't think that this verse is meant to condemn us. I believe that it's meant to draw us to a sense of humility. That I too (laughs) need Jesus. And so he writes down, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and they leave. And then the next part.
justified freely by his grace, the redemption that is Jesus Christ. He redeemed her freely. At the end of exposing everybody's sins, I want you to, to acknowledge this. I want you to see this. Jesus put everybody on a level playing field at that point in time. They were above her condemning her. And Jesus wrote their sins down. And suddenly, they too were condemned. And they ran away. And she was still there. What would happen? What would have happened if one of the Pharisees too fell down, broke down in tears, on the ground with this woman crying? All are freely justified. He would have been justified too. All for no other reason, for the simple fact that he wanted it. And that's where we're at. And that's where we go. I think that maybe, and and I I really struggled, I always do, but I really struggled to put this sermon into a flow that made sense because the more I thought about it, the more I just saw spider webs of pieces coming out and this beautiful picture being drawn that's not linear. Um, But it's the story of salvation. And and so so I'm looking at this, and I I wonder if, if maybe we would be served well to look at sin a little bit less like these barriers to perfection, like a tarnish on my perfection, on the tarnish for me, and instead see sin as simply barriers between relationship with Jesus. Because I think that we we look at that and we say, it's, it's easy for us to want to believe that these are things that we have to fix about me before I can come to Jesus. And that's not the way that he worked. I believe that God valued us so much that he reached down and said, I will make a way for this relationship to work. And when I justify you by grace, all that means is that I'm peeling away the layers of things that come in between us. And if we really believe that we are the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth— I believe that everything that Jesus did physically was an analogy for what he was to do spiritually, right? Why would Jesus bother to spend the time healing somebody that was just going to die soon afterwards? Have you thought about that? I have. Guess what? None of the people that Jesus healed are still alive. They're not here to talk to us. Why would he do that, right? Like, that was a fairly temporary solution, But he did that because he wanted to show that he has the power to heal physically and he has the power to heal spiritually. That's what he wanted. He wanted to show that he cared. And I think it's—he did that partially, too, because, like, that's simply who he is. He cares. He cares. He's not just thinking about the end goal. And so if we believe that we are Jesus' hands and feet on the face of this planet, then how are we to look at others? When we look at others and we see people's sins, right, like out on display for everyone to see, what do we see in that? And if we were to be Jesus, I think first of all we would see the value of that person just the way that they are, not as a project to be fixed, but as a person who is valuable and good just the way that they are. And then second of all, we would long for a relationship with them, and we would long to peel away the layers that divide us so that we can 
grow to a deeper and more meaningful relationship with them. So that's something for you to think about a little bit as you go throughout your week and as we talk about and as we think about what does acceptance in this environment mean to you? Let's pray. God, we put up the walls. <laughs> we make masks. We pretend to be people that we're not. All the fool people in, into treating us a way that we don't want to be treated. It's so weird. We're weird. God, I, I thank you for looking through all that for us. I thank you for seeing through that with all of us. And God, I ask that you help us to see through your eyes so that we can see through all that stuff so that sin no longer is something that repulses us, but simply something that is a barrier between us that is removed so that we can have that deeper relationship because that's what you desire with us. Thank you so much for coming and dying for us. That's no small feat and for seeing us as worthy to die for. Man. Lord, Lord, give us the deep desire for you every day. Amen.